Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Matt Adams Podcast. I'm broadcasting somewhat live from the comfy confines of Castle Adams on the southeast side of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm going to talk a little bit today about developments in my Crimson Streak series. Now, Crimson Streak is a series of comedic superhero books that follow a character named Chris Fairborn and uh, his family, some wacky characters and those kinds of things. It's, it's written as a parody of the superhero genre. So we look at comic books. There's a little bit of deconstruction there, although that's not really the express purpose to reconstruct different aspects of comic books, superheroes, and superhero movies, although that is kind of what happens in the books by default. I've really always liked the series. It really started with the idea of a very simple idea for the first book. And that idea was what would happen to a superhero if he ended up in prison and his dad happened to be the person who put him there. That was the very first germ of the idea that turned into a three-book series. Although I didn't always intend it to be a three-book series, it just kind of worked out that way. So, from the very first part, from the very beginning, that book started with Crimson Streak and an insane asylum or a criminal, uh, an asylum for the criminally insane called the Claremont Institution for the Criminally Insane. That is where our character started out. He's a super speedster much like The Flash in many regards, wears red, runs fast, a clear inspiration for it. There is no doubt about that. I would never hide from it. The book always started with him in this institution, in a straitjacket, trying to figure out how he got here. I mean, he knows how he got there, but explaining how he got there and letting everybody know that his father is the one who put him there. The Colonel Chaos, who was one of the great heroes of the world. He started out as one of the great supervillains in world history until he met Crimson Streak's mother, Miss Lightspeed. They fell in love. And all the bad stuff that Colonel Chaos did uh, when he sort of uh, held the world for ransom and did it a few times, sometimes more successfully than others, uh, redeemed himself and became a great champion for justice. And then Miss Lightspeed died. This happened when Chris was in high school, or in college. His mother died, she was killed in a fight against a bad guy named Zeus Caesar, and that just completely changed the whole concept of everything. His dad sort of went off the deep end, trying to find any way in the world to bring back Karen Fairborn who was super gifted. She could run fast. She could fly. She had all kinds of superpowers. I mean, super strength. Just unstoppable. And so was her husband. He had the, the brilliant intellect. He had the flight. He had the muscles and the super strength. And uh, while his parents had these fantastic gifts, Chris himself only had the super speed. He was just a super speedster, probably the fastest 
person on Earth. And in some ways, he feels a little bit slighted because uh, his parents could fly, they were super strong. They thought that super strength was going to kind of kick in, you know, maybe around the time he hit adolescence, and it never really did. So he always feels like he's a little bit of a disappointment. But anyway, after, after his mother passes away, uh, his father is desperate to do anything he can to bring her back. Uh, cloning experiments. Um, I would imagine he tried some time travel, or at least experimented with it. He tried opening rifts into different dimensions where he could find different versions of Miss Lightspeed that he could pull back in because he missed his wife so much. And in doing so, he just really went off the deep end. And uh, he established the New World Commonwealth, which spread all across the world, and it took individual states in the United States, divided it into regions, and everything became New World Commonwealth. Almost overnight. Politicians, Congress, presidents, they were powerless to stop Colonel Chaos from taking over the world. And in the midst of all of this, Colonel Chaos started branding people as enemies of the state and locking them away, including his own son, Crimson Streak. So that's where he is in this first book. He starts out in the Claremont Institution for the Criminally Insane. He's in a straitjacket. There's no escape, no way to get out. He's stranded in a situation he's never been in before. And that's, that's the idea behind the first Crimson Streak book. And it, it has always started with that line, uh, or, or that scene, where he's in there talking about he, he, he wished he could say he was mutated, or he wished he could say he, you know, was uh, a billionaire with a big secret, but, you know, he's Crimson Streak, he's there, and he needs to get out. The book went through a lot of different iterations. I don't even really remember when I first wrote it. It probably would have been late 2009, late 2008, somewhere in there. And it had a lot of potential. It was a fairly brief book, about 70,000 words, 65, 70,000 words or so. So it was a little on the short side, kind of a breezy read. I really enjoyed writing it. Uh, I went with first person. I had my first draft written. I did some revisions. And then I saw soon I will be Invincible from Austin Grossman, which is a first-person superhero book. I thought a lot of people might th think that I kind of copied that off him, but I didn't. I didn't know anything about that book until after I'd written the first draft of Crimson Streak. And the book also included several appendices, appendices where we put different... We, we put character profiles in there. We put old newspaper articles with some history of the Fairborn family and the world as it was back in the days when Colonel Chaos was evil, because Colonel Chaos and Miss Lightspeed fought against each other for a very long time until uh, Colonel Chaos just fell in love with her. And just it flipped a switch in him, and instead of being, like, the worst guy ever, he became a champion for truth, justice, the American way, all that good stuff. So it's it's a sad story because when Miss Lightspeed dies, that, that force that grounds him, that makes Colonel Chaos to aspire to be someone better than maybe he thinks he is, he loses that. 
and in a way he loses himself. He loses his relationship with his son, they were always close, and he just cannot cope with the loss of his wife. And that sets the world off in just this direction. Now, early drafts of Crimson Streak had uh, some differences. I think the main plot points are very similar as far as the progression of the story and where things end up going. There are details that change. The Crusading Comet character, the Warren Kensington character, used to be kind of a whiny teenage sidekick. He really wasn't much of an interesting character. Didn't have any real defining qualities other than he was kind of mad at Crimson Streak because he'd let his dad take over the world. We're going to get into some spoilers for the early parts of the book. Not a, not a big surprise. It's in there that Crimson Streak escapes, so eventually he does get out of the Claremont Institution for the criminally insane in original drafts of that book, I don't even know if we've mentioned... I, I think we did mention the Crusading Comet, uh, Warren's dad, but he didn't play any type of integral role to the progression of that story in the first chapter. And we have changed... I, I, I changed that quite a bit due to some help from a great beta reader and friend of mine, Mike Latuzic, who felt that we needed something a little bit more personal for Crimson Streak involving his escape and maybe another dynamic that we could play with Warren. So we, we kind of powwowed a little bit, and we came up with the idea that one of the people who would help Crimson Streak break out of his prison was the Crusading Comet, and that the Crusading Comet was hurt during the escape. Crimson Streak doesn't know the extent of those injuries. So when he does get out, and he gets into New York, he finds himself looking for some help and so he goes to the he goes to Mortimer P. Willoughby, he goes to the, the Comet estate, and that's where he tries to find some help and and, and he, I, I don't think he ever expected that anyone was going to greet him with open arms necessarily, but I do believe he thought people would be a little bit more helpful. Warren's pretty ticked at him because he knows that uh, there's that original sort of through line of, hey, dude, your dad screwed up the entire world, and if he screwed it up, you're just as bad. So there is that through line, but it's not the main thrust of it. The main thrust of it is, hey, dude, you escaped. My dad was there. I, I know that he was. What happened to him? Chris doesn't have any answers, and he didn't help the Crusading Comet escape while he was there either. So... Warren has a lot of animosity because of that. And because his dad has been taken out of the picture, uh, at least temporarily, Warren has the mantle of the Crusading Comet thrust upon him much earlier than it should be. This is a kid that's in his late teens. He would really rather be concerned with playing video games and meeting girls, watching movies, and enjoying life. But instead, he, he has, you know, the, the cape, the cow, the gauntlets, all the toys of the Crusading Comet are at his disposal. And that makes him a more interesting character. I think that that motivation is just not, I'm a whiny teenager and, you know, you, your dad took over the world and that means you're bad too. 
And again, there is some of that in there. This is more the story of a kid who is really trying to be something that he's not ready for, that he's not prepared for. And he's a more interesting character because of that. Now, Mortimer P. Willoughby, who is probably my favorite character to write, bar none, I think. I, I've enjoyed writing uh, Morty and his witticisms more than anybody else. And he, he is, to me, the key to the book. And if you like Morty and you like Crimson Streak and Warren, they, they kind of make this trio. And they play off of each other, they quip. And Morty is just so much fun. Tries to play the adult, but it's not always easy for him because he just doesn't have a lot of respect for Crimson Streak. He admires his father and what his father used to be, and he certainly admired Miss Lightspeed, who was a champion of righteousness. But Chris has always sort of fallen short of the ideals set by his parents. And he sort of annoys Morty because... You have this dynamic where Warren's younger, he has responsibility thrust upon him, and he's going to try to rise to meet the challenge. Whereas Morty feels like Chris, who's the son of a great superhero and an, of another great superhero, has fallen quite a bit short of the standards set by his parents, especially once Miss Lightspeed died. And it's those dynamics, I think, that play very well. Those characters all play off each other very well. And I really enjoyed putting them together and, and just having Morty come back with a zinger and Chris try to antagonize Morty. But Morty, nobody ever gets the best of Mortimer P. Willoughby. He's always the guy that's going to get the better of you. So, you know, that that's what happens. Chris is in prison. He gets out. Helped by the Crusading Comet, has no idea whether he lives or dies. And then he gets back out of the world. He, he finds uh, Warren, the current Crusading Comet, and Mortimer. So you have this trio who comes together to try to figure out how to save the world. And they're not a particularly great fighting force together. Because Mortimer has no superpowers. And he's an old dude. Warren has no superpowers, and he's a teenager, although he's a skilled combatant, because part of the Crusading Comet legacy is you train. And Chris, while endowed with super speed, which is a great power to have, isn't particularly effective against people who can lift vans and, and Mack trucks off the ground and throw them at you, or punch a building and knock it down. He's not particularly well-matched against those types of people. Although, he is smart, and he's able to use his super speed in ways that can counteract some of those things. Crimson Street started out with that idea of someone being a, a superhero being imprisoned and his dad being the one who threw, threw him in there. And then it just expanded into this entire superhero universe, which I did not expect. I thought there would be one Crimson Streak book. Just... I Crimson Streak, I wrote it in first person, that's why it's I, Crimson Streak for the title. It's a standalone. There are some, definitely some plot threads that can be picked up in a sequel, but they don't have to be. I always liken it to the Star Wars structure of the original Star Wars trilogy. 
after the first Star Wars, there is really no expectation or reason for there to be a second Star Wars movie. It would be great if there was. Obviously, we want to know, does Han Solo stay with the Rebellion after he helps blow up the Death Star, or does he come back? Does Luke Skywalker find himself learning the ways of the Jedi Knights that he just learned about, and learn more about the Force and how to expand his powers? We know that Darth Vader's alive and well, because they did have the foresight not to kill Vader in that first movie. His TIE fighter gets dinged by the Falcon and sort of spins out in space, and then after the Death Star is destroyed, he flies off to, you know, parts unknown for a while, just so the Empire can regroup. So there, there are dangling pl uh, plot threads there, but there is not necessarily anything that has to be picked up on in a second movie. Then the Empire Strikes Back comes out, and, uh, you know, Star Wars was a huge hit, global sensation, changed movies forever, changed marketing, changed merchandising forever, didn't necessarily invent the modern blockbuster, other movies were blockbusters before it, but there was never anything quite to the level of Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back comes out, another major success. The storytelling's a little bit darker, it's a little bit more mature, a little more refined in the second movie. And more importantly, it doesn't just leave a few plot threads dangling that could be picked up on in the, in the next movie. It ends in a cliffhanger. Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite. Spoiler alert, Darth Vader reveals that he is Luke's father. Luke gets his hand chopped off. At the end of that movie, Lando and Chewbacca are going to go take the first steps in finding out where Han is so that they can execute a, a plan to get him to get him free, bring him back. And that's where the movie ends. Our heroes are in peril, things are not good, and we know that that story is going to be resolved in the third movie, which is Return of the Jedi, which starts out with they rescue Han, we find out about another Death Star, Luke finds out, you know, that Leia's his sister, he goes to confront his father, they blow up the, the Death Star, everybody celebrates, and then that's the end of it at least for 30-some years. And the Crimson Streak books, while not being compared to Star Wars in any appreciable way, follow the same type of pattern in their storytelling. And that is, the first book is a standalone with some plot threads that could be picked up on. I didn't envision writing a sequel, but there was enough there with uh, the New World Commonwealth being destroyed, and some other things involving Chris's parents. I'll try not to spoil the book. That could be picked up on in the second book. And we do. We reestablish all of these things. And expand that book out. Into a sort of. Crisis on infinite earths. Type of story. In which we have. Intergalactic space cops. And aliens. And multiple realities. And the multiverse. And then of course it, it ends. In a cliffhanger. That second book does, which we pick up on in the third book. There's really not a good resolution to the second book. And it was intentionally that way. And in the original version of it, there's just a revelation, and then it was like roll credits. And that didn't really work very well. So I went back and forth with my editor on it. We had a little section of Chris reflecting on his current situation. That wrapped uh, didn't wrap up the plot elements of the book. But it did give us kind of a through line of the emotional arc of that story and the place that Chris is at. And then the third book picks up right a few months after that. And then there are big battles and stuff. So, first book standalone. Second book's a little darker in tone. Ends in a cliffhanger. Third story, 
picks up from the cliffhanger, resolves some of those plot threads, ends in a big battle, the galaxy is saved. So it, it does ape a little bit from the Star Wars trilogy in sort of the thought process behind the story. Now, I wrote that book, and I liked that book, but that book was not made to be brilliant. It's still not brilliant. Brilliant is not a word that I should use to describe the Crimson Streak books, but the book was not made whole. Uh, it was not made what it is until I did some major revisions with it, thanks to my, my beta reader, Mike Latuzic, who really helped me kind of hammer down the emotional points of the story. And while it's a romp and it's fun, we do have characters with stakes and concerns that need to be addressed. And there's, there are a lot of things that changed in that initial draft. I actually have a, a few manuscripts around here. A few of the original Crimson Streak manuscripts are around here in the house. They're in a stack. Pretty sure my wife hates it. But it, it's kind of cool to go back and look through them on occasion. The appendices were always there. Profiles of characters, old newspaper articles, that sort of thing. I, I've always enjoyed writing that extra content. I, when I first tried to pitch Crimson Streak to some publishers, and really, I didn't have any business pitching it to publishers when I first started out, but, you know, when you're first starting out, you, you don't you don't necessarily understand how much work it takes to get a book published by a major publisher. You don't understand everything that goes into getting that book from a first draft to the 14th draft to something that is actually not terrible. I was a little confident in my abilities, and I, I should not have been. I'm more confident now, probably with a little more justification, but I'm still not perfect. I have never be perfect in... First drafts are always terrible. Second drafts are usually also terrible. And until you've dug into your, your manuscript four or five times, it's not going to be very, very good. And until you get some feedback from some other people, it's just going to be your view of things. And in your own writing, it's very easy to overlook your own weaknesses. I have a real tendency in my books to make them dialogue heavy. I love writing dialogue. I try not to write clunky dialogue. I'm sure some of it is clunky here and there. But I really like writing it. And unfortunately, when I do that, there are lots of passages of expository dialogue that really can just be summarized in a quick line or two of exposition within the text. A point that is being explained by a character to another character that doesn't need to be explained. And thankfully... I have learned to recognize that. And while I cannot stop myself from doing that when I'm writing, when I go back and read my stuff, I am able to find those passages, either cut them down, or get rid of them, or change them into narrative-driven prose within, within the book. Yeah, I submitted it. I sent it out to agents, and I, I never got any requests for it. I wouldn't have in 2008, 2009, 2010, because it wasn't there. It was nowhere near to, to where it needed to be. I, I tried to sell it as, you know, a comedic superhero book, and I, I tried to sell those appendices, and I still think it's a neat idea, as sort of the DVD extras of the book. You don't have to read those passages to enjoy the novel, but they do give you a wider view of things, 
and enhance your enjoyment of it when you read those passages. That's what DVD extras do. You don't need them. You don't need a director commentary. You don't need a featurette of green screen because I think by now we all know how that works and how computer graphics come together with d digital compositing and, and all those elements come together. I think we've seen enough behind-the-scene featurettes to know we don't need that stuff to enjoy the movie. But it does enhance our enjoyment of the film when we see those things. That's what the appendices are meant to be. Now, Crimson Streak, I Crimson Streak, the first one, I think has the most... Uh, I, I don't have the numbers with me. I'm not going to look it up. But, but it's got the, the, mo the largest amount of background material in it. Which makes sense because I didn't want to explain every single little thing in the book. So we allude to some things. And then if you're interested in those, you want to learn more about them, you'll you'll find them in the back of the book, in the different uh, appendices. But each, each book has a smaller and smaller amount of that extra material. But they all have some sort of uh, heroic profile or profiles of villains. They have newspaper articles about the way the world has progressed. In the second book, you know, we, we sort we follow the development of uh, the U.S. government after the fallout from the New World Commonwealth idea. We follow Mortimer P. Willoughby's journal entries. We learn a little bit about the Crusading Comet background through Mortimer's journal entries that are from different years, because Mortimer has served under four different crusading comets. It's a legacy hero. The first one was the original, of course, and then his son succeeded him, and then his son succeeded him, and then his son succeeded him. But we kind of play it off, and I even make a joke about this in the book, about, you know, it's kind of a, a cheap version of the Phantom, or a, a total ripoff of the Phantom, because the Phantom in, in the comic book, or comic strip mythology, the Phantom was always um, a family member of, a, a member of that family. And so, you know, one phantom would get killed and the next would take his place and it would make him look immortal. And they called him the ghost who walks because he's been killed, yet here he is back again. And I'm going to say this and, and probably be really embarrassed by this, but I think that the Billy Zane version of the phantom is really underrated. It's kind of got sort of a, B-movie serial feel to it, and I really enjoy that movie. It's not great, I'm sure, and, and it, it was a bomb, and it was the only movie that I have ever seen in which the theater was completely empty, except for my mom and me. We, we went to see that, and we were the only two people in the theater uh, in Richmond, Indiana, and I have never had that experience before. Every once in a while, we'll go to the movies... Uh, the coming contractions will come up. There will be nobody else in the theater. I'll be in the theater with my wife, and I'm thinking, here it is. Finally, one more time, I am going to have this personal, private screening of this movie. Never has happened. Someone always comes in midway through the credits, or, you know, a family comes in late, and or some guy sits down the front row by himself. So it, it doesn't happen. But I, I did enjoy that that movie. One of my guilty pleasures, probably. I, I even have a Blu-ray, and uh, I find it to be a, a fun movie. But that's the conceit of the Crusading Comet, is the Phantom. Seems like the hero's been dead. 
or seems like the hero can't be killed because he just keeps coming back because there's always a new generation to succeed someone who has fallen and they make sure that the the next person in line is trained and that's why Warren's an interesting character because he he does have that teenage side of him where he would like to play video games and go to movies and that sort of thing but he he also has that side of him where he has to grow up too soon because he's always had to train he's always had to learn the hand-to-hand combat stuff he's always had to learn technology and how to how to manipulate it and he's always had morty on his back telling him to do this and that because by golly son one day you're going to be the crusading comet and that's what is expected of you so you know we, we pitched i pitched that book obviously soundly rejected i had no idea how to write a query letter at that point the writing wasn't there a lot of polite rejections i didn't even have a dedicated author email address back then and then we we did i did a lot of rewrites i did a lot of rewrites i had some help from my friend mike like i said we really whipped that book into shape and to my surprise there was a small press out of vermont that was interested in the book i pitched it and uh, they wanted it they wanted to publish it and i just thought it was the greatest thing in the world still do still a very proud moment you sign that first book contract, you know, there's no advance because you're dealing with a small press, sort of an experimental press. But to know that somebody else likes your book means the world. It doesn't matter whether it's a big press or a small press or a friend. It's a great feeling. So we put Crimson Streak out. I worked on it, did some revisions, changed a few things here and there. But for the most part, that book is very similar in its final form as to how it was submitted. Uh, there, there are rewritten passages, some stuff taken out, things reworked, and those things are part of the the writing and publishing process. They they must occur. They have to happen. I was really happy with the book. The publisher was very happy with the book, but we're talking small publisher. I am in Indiana, they're in Vermont. We did okay. Whenever I'd go to a book signing, we we would sell quite a few books for the most part, and it things would go well. But you're never going to get rich from publishing, and you're never going to get rich from small press publishing unless some very special circumstances are at play. You know, your your six-figure advances or your seven-figure book deals are the rarities, and they make headlines because they're rarities. They don't make headlines because everybody who writes a book gets a ton of money or gets a movie deal or signs a big contract. Those get publicity because they are the exception to the rule and it's sort of like the lottery publishing hey this guy won a million dollars on the scratch-off ticket and you could too that's the equivalent of those those big book deals I, I don't have any numbers in front of me your your average author does not make a lot of money your average advance is not very high probably in the four digits and they don't start making money back on a book until they've earned back that advance. So if you make $5,000 as an advance, that's an advance against royalties, once your book earns out that money that you've been advanced, then you start making additional revenue from it. So I think people have this illusion that you write the book, you sell it, you get a big deal, and then the money just starts rolling in. And it's, it's the furthest thing from reality. 
what I'm saying is if you're going to write, don't be in it for the money because the money cannot be your primary consideration because you're not gonna you're not going to make it unless you are extremely lucky. But Crimson Street came out. I think it was a pretty decent launch. I, I did a quite a few signings, did well during the signings, you know, made some money back, and that was nice. Two Crimson Street came out and I don't think it was as good as as the first book as polished. It went through extensive rewrites. Because this author that is talking to you right now got a little bit full of himself. He thought, well, I've sold a book. I'm good. I can pretty much write whatever I need to and we'll be fine. And even though uh, I went over that book with my beta reader and made some changes to it, by the time it got to the publisher, it was not ready to go. So we had, I had extensive rewrites. Extensive rewrites for Two Crimson Streak because the plot just didn't really make a lot, a lot of sense. And then it just ended on a, on a blatant cliffhanger. So I, I spent a lot of time uh, rewriting Two Crimson Streak, but it came out in October 2013. I should mention I Crimson Streak came out in May of uh, 2012. Uh, Two Crimson Streak came out in October 2013. Uh, I learned a lot on that second book. Don't get too full of yourself. Don't submit until you're ready. And it was uh, full speed ahead to resolving the cliffhanger in Three Crimson Streak. And that book never came out. I submitted it. I got a little bit of feedback on it. But, you know, you're just kind of wondering, is this book going to come out ever? Are we, are we working on this thing? And as it turned out, the, uh, the publisher sold to somebody else. They wanted to, to focus the, the press on stuff that was a little more hardcore science. I shouldn't say hardcore science. More hard sci-fi. Stuff that probably that, that means stuff. Important works. And as much as I love Crimson Streak and Company, an important work, it is not. It is a book full of pop culture references, adventure tropes, comic book tropes, and it is meant to be fun. So I don't begrudge them for, if that's the direction they wanted to take the press in, then that is the direction they want to take the press in. I can't really argue too much with that. And Crimson Streak doesn't fit that at all. The nice thing about that was uh, when they decided that, then all the rights for Crimson Streak and Two Crimson Streak and Three Crimson Streak reverted back to me. I had control of my books. We had bought the art. My publisher had bought the art for the cover work. So that was something that they owned, and they were nice enough to pass that to me. I would imagine we'll get new covers someday for it. But... For now, those covers will work. And I, I, I just had been sitting on those books for a long time, and, and I actually did have somebody, and, and not just like a friend or an acquaintance, somebody that I knew, it was somebody who had read Crimson Streak and Two Crimson Streak and was asking a couple years ago, is Three Crimson Streak ever going to come out? And at the time, I'm like, well, right now, the, the answer is I don't know. It's sort of in flux. It's no longer in flux now. A small press out of Kentucky, Hydra Publications, has taken Crimson Streak on. The first two books, as of this recording, which is February 2nd, 2018. Oh, by the way, Phil, thanks for seeing your shadow again this year. First two books are already out in ebook form. The print versions should be out fairly soon, if they're not already. And then the third book is being 
looked at and will probably do, you know, there'll probably be some minor revisions, although I feel it's pretty polished now. It's gone through beta readers and I've rewritten a lot. I, I was actually reading through it a little bit uh, the other day. I, I like being in that universe. I, I do like the characters there. And Three Crimson Streak, I, I think people will find to be quite a bit of fun. It's, it's nutty. While the first book is superheroes and superhero cliches, and the second book is an interdimensional havoc, the third book is fun with time travel, which is another one of my favorite tropes in all of fiction. I wouldn't say I write time travel particularly well, but it is fun to go back in different eras, see some of our characters at different stages in their lives, and how they relate to the current characters, or the current crop of characters that have been thrust back into the past in a fish-out-of-water scenario. What I'm going to do here, to close this out, is I am going to attempt to read the first chapter of Three Crimson Streak. I don't think it's going to take too long. The podcast is starting to get a little bit on the long side here, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. It's uh, Chapter 1 is called The Walking Dread. And, of course, this is in first person, so this is in... I'm not going to do any funny voices or anything like that. Get down! Get down! I yell over the ground-shaking bangs of anti-aircraft fire. The air raid sirens let us down again. I'd run around and tell everybody myself, except we don't have that kind of time. I'm not that fast these days, anyway. I've gotten a tenuous handle on what's going on. Three months ago, I showed up to find my mom and dad missing. The crusading comets are nowhere in sight. Crimson Spreet is broken. A not-so-distant memory of what I used to be. A war rages through time and space, but to all of us stranded here, it feels more like a Terminator movie directed by George Romero. As Morty, the real, actual Mortimer P. Willoughby, who died yet is somehow back, tells it, we're entrenched in an alternate reality London against forces led by Fourth Reich Rich, who finally got his Nazi zombie plot to work. Morty calls it an endless war, and here I thought I'd fix the multiverse. The overarching situation remains nebulous as Morty, or the infinite commendatory, as Jackie calls him, can't say for sure what's going on. We think Earth and its inf infinite brethren are fighting for their very existence against the Kiltex and the Bands. Yeah, those guys have managed to uh, muck everything up. Pardon me wants to blame High Imperator Colonel Chaos. He betrayed the Kiltex and imprisoned Orange Band Commander Clem. But let's face it, this was coming one way or another. Both sides have some pretty funny ideas about Earth and its place in the scheme of intergalactic politics and power. The Kiltex wanted to use Earth superheroes to beat the bands once and for all. The bands identified Earth Prime, that's my Earth, as the key junction point to combine the seven wings of their insane intergalactic rainbow club. Suffice to say, I'm dealing with a lot of dark nights where strange, flashy things happen. The simple solution would be to run away, except I can't. No matter how fast I will my feet to go, I can't hit that higher gear. There is no crimson streaking. I'm just a guy in a red suit. Perfect speed is a distant, fading memory. Interdimensional rifts are a thing of the past. I used to be speed. I used to own it. Now I'm just like any other soldier in our ranks. I'm a red shirt. Useless. Expendable. Fourth Reich Rich's forces just hit us with a mortar attack. The ground shakes as the explosive hit, and I think everyone in my unit survived. A zeppelin spins in the sky after getting dinged by our artillery. I bet Morty's already dispatched Falcon Grey to take care of it. I'm thrilled to have the Birdman on my side. His mighty talons have slain many a Nazi zombie. 
Others have met his peck of a thousand deaths, a truly unholy sight. The enemy forces keep coming and coming like the horde mode in Gears of War. I suspect Fourth Reich Rich has a limitless supply of en enemy warriors, though it's possible we're about to level up and finally end this game. If only we could be that lucky. Chris, they're coming around our right flank. Get your troops in position, Morty warns over the low-deaf walkie-talkie. Got it, Morty, I respond, turning my second-in-command. Sergeant Ryan, reinforce the right flank. Get us moving. Yes, sir, Ryan says, giving me a smart salute. For some reason, all our soldiers are nondescript Americans with the last name Ryan. We've been saving countless Ryans over the last few months. We move against the hard dirt, the flashes of our artillery providing seizure-inducing strobe lights along the way. It's like the final moments aboard the Nostromo around here. Constant flashes, a flipbook in the dark. When we reach the right flank, Mystic Warren greets us. He towers over everyone in an olive-gray version of the stupid-looking moons and stars and comets get-up he has worn ever since an alternate universe Morty introduced me to the five. With you here, we will be able to hold them back, Mystic Warren says, projecting a coil of yellow energy from his right hand. Your first must slow their advance while my powers regenerate. Ryan, send the bulk of our troops to reinforce the middle. Split the rest between the left and right sides, I tell my second in command. Ryan gives me another salute. Our soldiers get into position as enemy soldiers try to push through. Three bangs. The shrieks of enemy soldiers make the hair on my arms stand straight up. Like many of our skirmishes, this one follows a predictable pattern of gun blasts and horrifying enemy squeals. After a few minutes, Mystic Warren forms a ball of yellow energy and sends it toward the charging foes to obliterate them. The sound of his conjured magic, a kind of magical harp solo, doesn't match the surroundings. Brace yourselves, Mystic Warren shouts. I'm giving them my best shot. A flash of yellow and white, more shrieking, a few more gun blasts, and we've earned a momentary break as Mystic Warren, our Sorcerer Supreme, steps back to recharge. Hold those lines, I yell over the gunfire. My eyes drift toward the sky, which remains perpetually black. No one's seen the sun in months. Mystic Warren's energy balls are the closest we get these days. Here they come, one of the Ryan's yells, drawing my attention back to the battle. The enemy charges with more hissing and shrieking. In the movies, zombies move slowly and deliberately, but our enemies come straight out of the 28 Days Later mold. They're fast, relentless, utterly frightening. We'd prefer the 50s Romero version. Even I could outrun those guys these days. I tell my troops to keep strong in the middle, and they fire their rifles. A flash of yellow? No, wait. That's not yellow. And I didn't hear Mystic Warren's stupid magic heart noise again. Past the line of encroaching enemy soldiers, a burst of orange sets the sky alight. I turn to Mystic Warren. You got this? The big man shakes his head. I need more time to regenerate. How much more? More. Well, that's helpful. I break out my walkie-talkie. Dark Comet, what's your situation? We're quiet. What do you want? She asks with the subtlety of an impatient diner waitress on her last day at work. We could use some help here, I tell her. We're not getting outrun yet, but we're struggling. I can spare a few soldiers, Fairborn, she says, making my last name sound more despicable than Samson Knight ever did. They're on their way. They'd better hurry. Enemy soldier zombies break through our lines, and I order my reserves to bolster our ranks. I can't help but feel I'm about to lose this game of Ryans versus zombies. How long? I ask Mystic Warren. He shakes his head, breathes heavily. More time. We don't have it. We need something now. Reinforcements arrive, pushing back against the tidal wave of enemy soldiers. For a moment, it looks like we're going to repel the threat. A low growl overwhelms the skirmish. Oh, boy. All too often, something goes wrong with Fourth Reich Rich's creations. The zombies get juiced up as if they've pushed the Vendom button to go all Bane on us. It starts with a low, persistent growl. Seconds later, the zombies grow taller and their muscles expand. 
The transformation happens at the most inopportune moment. Get back! Get back! I yell. The steadfast fighting Ryans have will have none of that. Staying in position as Dark Comet's troops fill the gaps. A monster of pure rage sweeps its arm through the middle of the soldiers, clearing more than a dozen away. The beast's arm, thicker than a utility pole, tosses aside more of my forces. I motion to my troops. We can't hold them. They're there in beast mode. Pull back! I look aside to Mystic Warren. Got anything? He shakes his head. I can't push them back. I'm not regenerating. My eyes meet his. Then we make for the shelter. If the front lines are ever overwhelmed, Morty designated a shelter where we can make a last stand. It's our Alamo. If we're forced to take refuge there, we know nobody's going home. No, Mystic Warren protests. We're not done yet. The juiced-up zombie throws a private Ryan at me, and I dodge just in time. Wouldn't have been nearly close to crimson speed. Several soldiers open fire and hit the beast, but that serves only to enrage it. The creature knocks troops down like bowling pins. Another flash of orange light grows so brightly, I cover my eyes. When I look up, the creature is gone. So are all my soldiers. The air is thick with the smell of smoke and burnt flesh. The enemy shrieks, stop. Good thing your powers came back in time, I tell Mystic Warren. He shakes his head, points toward the now empty battlefield. No, he says. A single figure stands among the carnage. He staggers through downed bodies and scales the massive lump of the juiced-up zombie, and up just steps away from me. Where in the cosmos am I, the man asks. He sounds confused and out of place, which means he probably belongs right here. Is that you? Crimson Street Prime? Artillery flashes give me a good look at the man's face. He wears an orange band of power that glows faintly and carries himself and carries himself with the air of an aristocrat. Clem? Crimson Street Prime, is that you? Is that you? He responds, putting his hands on my shoulders. It is you! He sighs and raises his hands toward the sky. An orange band, an orange sight. Guiding power, orange light. Orange bands unite, rejoice, knowing I'll never get another shot at it. My fist slams into his nose before he can finish. It almost feels a little crimson speech, actually. He goes down like glass Joe. I see you to drop by. So that's the first chapter of Three Crimson Streak. Again, it picks up about three months after Two Crimson Streak, as Chris and some of his allies are trapped in this purgatory, World War II kind of place where they're, they're fighting a bunch of zombies. And he really can't do anything about it because he doesn't have Crimson Speed anymore. Three Crimson Streak will be coming out fairly soon. I don't have any dates or anything like that because it's going to need some some work because it, it's uh, not been seen from an editorial standpoint by somebody outside of me or outside of my beta reader and, and, and me. So, But I've always enjoyed uh, that first chapter, how things kind of kind of pick up and it plunges you right into the middle of things. After that, we end up uh, with some little, little bit of tri- time travel. Chris finds out, I don't think this is really a major spoiler, but Chris finds out that the Indigo bands, there are seven units of the bands in the Roy G. Biv rainbow world of, of the, the band collective. The Indigo bands are trying to mess through time, mess with time, and they want, they try to disrupt the first meeting between Miss Lightspeed and Colonel Chaos in the 70s. And so Chris goes back in time 
he has to try to restore that timeline because if he can convince Colonel Chaos, uh, the old, the, the young version of his father, who is thoroughly evil and has not met Miss, Miss Lightspeed and, and redeemed himself, tries to convince, Chris tries to convince him to get on their side and help. So we go back to the 70s, which means, you know, peace protests and bad fashion and no social media. Although social media doesn't really play much of a role in the Crimson Streak books. But it, it, it's fun. I think people are going to like it. So that is going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. We talked all Crimson Streak, or I talked all Crimson Streak. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter, at Statomatty, that's S-T-A-T-O-M-A-T-T-Y, on Twitter, at Statomatty. If you want to email me, you can shoot me an email at matt at mattadamswriter.com. Matt at mattadamswriter.com. If you want to find more information out about my books, you can go to my author website, mattadamswriter.com. You'll find a lot of background information about the books in Crimson Streak Central, and two Crimson Streak Central on the tabs there at the top of the page. And you'll also find links to the current, the new ebook versions of the book that have been laid out and released by Hydra Publications. Crimson Streak's back, guys. Enjoy.